Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine. It's my pleasure to be joined today by Ambassador Bill Burns, who uh, is not only the CEO of the Carnegie Endowment, but he is one of the most distinguished diplomats the United States has produced in the past 50 years, former Deputy Secretary of State and Undersecretary of State. And um, he has written a book called The Back Channel, uh, which has been out for a bit now, and we're really glad to get him in here. Welcome, Bill. David, it's great to be with you. Um, and, you know, I, I hardly know where to start with the book because it covers not just your career, but it, it covers a lot of big issues mm-hmm. that are the kinds of issues we talk about on a regular basis. And uh, But let me, let me sort of take a, an arc of the past, um, I don't know, 35 or 40 years, your period of your career. <laughs> just to pick a number. <laughs> just yeah. to pick a number. And then, um, and then we'll look a little bit sure. at, at where we are now, okay? Um, but, but I'm going to present you with a thesis that I sort of took away from your book, mm. um, uh, which is sort of a reading between the lines thesis, um, uh, which is I sort of saw five periods of foreign policy mm-hmm. in the course of this in the in the course of the book in the Reagan Bush era where you started mm-hmm. um, it was the Cold War we had a clear policy containment was central to that policy we built a lot of what we did around our belief in the Western Alliance and international institutions um, and and we moved from that, uh, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, to sort of a period of searching. Mm-hmm. We were looking for the next um, uh, model, mm-hmm. sort of post-Cold War, but it was nothing, nothing coalesced really in that period. Um, and then the third period is um, the post-9-11 period, which was marked by a more unilateralist approach and an effort to make the war on terror kind of the organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy. We then went into a period sort of Mm post-Bush under Obama. um, And this, I I know this sounds like a lot, but we'll we'll Mm -hmm. come back and break it down. But but, but that, that was what I would characterize as sort of multilateralist retrenchment. In other words, there was a a belief in the international system, but it was heavily based on the idea that the international system should bear more of the burden 
than we bore. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't call it retreat. The idea of retrenchment was let's not uh, undertake unnecessary risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then we get into this this new period, this right. Trump period, right. uh, which goes a step further, and you might call it resurgent nationalism, mm -hmm. where we're, th there is a kind of actively anti-internationalist, actively anti-international institution, mm -hmm. multi anti-multilateralist right. impulse underlying mm -hmm. all this. And I guess I go back to the beginning, you know, and say, when you were starting out, right. It must have seemed un inconceivable that the the arc of the next thirty five or forty years would go from the progress that we saw towards multilateralism back to nationalism. Yeah, and when I joined the Foreign Service, beginning of nineteen eighty two, I mean nobody was predicting the end of the Cold War and the demise of the Soviet Union within a decade, but that's exactly what happened. And so you're right in hindsight. You know, there seems to be a clarity and predictability about that late Cold War era that, you know, at the time always seemed a lot more unsettled and uncertain than it yeah. was. And then you're right, as you move through the next four phases that you described about some of the challenges that we all wrestled with, you know, there was a natural um, inclination, I think, you know, after the end of the Cold War through the 1990s to try to find the successor to containment, you know, the sort of bumper sticker that would, you know, both help explain our strategy in the world and mobilize Americans and others around it. So you'll remember early in the Clinton administration, in which both of us served, you know, there were a number of speeches which focused on the term democratic enlargement. And I remember one Republican critic likened that to more like a prostate condition than anything else. But it was, you know, there was a logic to that, to thinking about how beyond the Cold War you can, you could expand, you know, the number of societies that shared a belief about open political and economic systems. 9-11 was a huge shock to our system. Um, and I think there was a kind of natural inclination now as a recovering diplomat looking back on that period um, for, you know, the U.S. administration, the George W. Bush administration to invest even further in military and intelligence tools of policy and, you know, treat diplomacy oftentimes as a kind of under-resourced afterthought. I think you're right. I don't think the Obama era can rightly be portrayed as a retreat from the world. It was, it was about, I think, um, responding to the overreaction post 9-11, the overreach post 9-11, especially in Iraq in 2003, um, and then not so much disengaging from the world, but changing the terms of our engagement, especially in places like the Middle East. Now we're in a whole different era you know, in the Trump era, in which, you know, I think in a lot of ways, what animated American foreign policy at its best in those earlier periods you described was a kind of enlightened self-interest. We weren't always at our best. We made lots of mistakes in administrations of both parties through those periods. But I think what's happened now is that President Trump has kind of turned that notion of enlightened self-interest on its head, a lot more about the self part than the enlightened part, a kind of you know, not just aggressive nationalism, but muscular unilateralism, which is dismissive in large part of the role of allies and partners, you know, that American power is best served 
unilaterally. And I, I think that is the wrong prescription for a new era on the international landscape, which is a lot more contested, crowded, and competitive than the world that you know I entered into as a young American diplomat in 1982. One of the things about that world, though, was there was no way to do containment and no way to maintain alliances and no way to make the international system work if you didn't place diplomacy at the center of the skill sets the country right. needed to have. And, you know, if you fast forward to now, you know, if you're very nationalist, yes. you get a different view, mm -hmm. which doesn't place it. And I, I, I don't think it's an accident that many of the strongest figures in in U.S. diplomacy, people you write about in yeah. your book yeah. um, as as mentors in uh -huh. some case, uh -huh. you know, uh, including, I would say, arguably the strongest Secretary of State of the past 40, 50 years, James Baker, mm -hmm. came in that period. Mm. Um, and that we've been struggling to find a, a how how we feel about and use diplomacy ever since. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the George H.W. Bush administration, in which Jim Baker served as the Secretary of State, um, you know, is at the zenith of American power and influence with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so, you know, you obviously have to take it, that into account. Our hand was stronger at that moment, uh, relatively speaking, than at any time since. Um, and, you know, Baker and Bush both understood you know, a sense of strategic purpose, that this kind of plastic moment on the international landscape after the end of the Cold War wasn't going to last forever. So you, you needed to use that moment of maximum American influence, and that diplomacy was a hugely important tool in doing that. And that helped explain their success in putting together everything from a coalition um, in Desert Storm to push Saddam uh, out of Kuwait to the process of German reunification within NATO less than a year after, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so it was that strategic purpose coupled with a sense of strategic empathy, which is different than sympathy, but uh, an understanding of what animated, you know, a lot of the players they were dealing with, whether it was Mikhail Gorbachev as the Soviet Union was collapsing or lots of really difficult customers in the Middle East that Baker successfully maneuvered into a peace conference in Madrid in the fall of 1991. And there was a sense of discipline, you know, an understanding of those moments where the United States ought to take risks and take advantage of opportunities, whether it was in German reunification or Desert Storm, and also the limits of American agency, even at that moment of peak American power in the world. In many respects, as a practical military matter, it would have been the easiest thing in the world in the spring of 1991, after Saddam's forces had been pushed out of Kuwait to pursue them to Baghdad and overthrow the regime. Bush, Baker, Scowcroft decided quite consciously not to do that because they were worried about breaking apart the coalition, which was centered on the aim of pushing Saddam out of Kuwait, not overthrowing the regime in Baghdad. They worried about the inheritance of post-Saddam Iraq. And Baker also had in mind at that point moving ahead on Arab-Israeli peace toward the Madrid Peace Conference, and he knew that this would complicate that as well. Um, so, you know, there was that sense of, you know, a balance between what's possible when you make creative use of American power and also the limits of our agency, too. And, you know, that 
that model has been hard to replicate, I think, since then. Well, it was kind of unique, right? You had, yeah. a, you had a president who had been a diplomat. Right. You had a strong secretary of state. You had a strong national security advisor right. who had a sort of troika, you know, partnership with the other yes. two. Yes. But you also had um, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Colin Powell, you know, who was right. a... Uh, uh, a sort of soldier statesman or right. emulated being a soldier statesman in the George Marshall model. You know, every, sure. there was this, and and even the, the second tier later, yeah. you know, the people like Steve Hadley and, yes. and Condi Rice and others who came out of that, right. you know, all and, and, and Bob Gates all sort of had this view that diplomacy was central. There was. It, no, it was the intersection of the moment on the international landscape and a, and a particularly skilled group of people who, just as you said, David, understood the significance of diplomacy. Ironically, at a moment because when because of our sheer weight and power in the world, we probably could, could have gotten away with being more dismissive of diplomacy. So that, you know, I was very fortunate in my career because early on I, I learned a lot from that model. And you know, and then we go into this period of searching in the mm -hmm. Clinton years, which we, you know, we we overlapped in mm -hmm. there. Um, mm -hmm. I happened to be in the Commerce Department at a moment where it's the economy stupid was kind of right, right, the fallback mantra, and we looked at a lot of things through an economic lens, sure. and and in some some respects during that period, uh, people like Bob Rubin started to play a bigger international role, yeah, not yeah. just because of the Mexico crisis and other things, but but because we were placing economics more mm -hmm. centrally, we thought we were sort of over the force-based, military-based right. right. era. It was kind of a hallucination. But 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 it you know that was a that was a, a whole different time. And I and I and I'm just wondering, you know, to me it seems like even then, the State Department began a sort of 30-year mm. introspective searching, you know, yeah. like for, for a role. No, I think you're right, David. I mean, I'd, and I'd say several things. First, just your point about integrating economic issues into national security was one of the healthiest developments, I think, in the 90s in the Clinton administration. That was long overdue in many respects, and, and I think that was a really important thing structurally to happen. But you're right about the State Department and diplomacy, and I'm always quick to acknowledge that Donald Trump didn't invent the drift in American diplomacy. I mean, you know, it has its roots going back at least a couple of decades before. Some of this was practical. You know, you and I both remember the kind of natural uh, – preoccupation at the time with a peace dividend with the end of the Cold War. So in terms of budgets, it was harder to make the case for budgets for the State Department, for diplomacy, as well as for development assistance as well. So you saw some pretty significant cuts by the second half of the 1990s as a result of budget. Strangely, cuts. not in military. No, not in military. In, but in in, the, in, you know, you would think they might be done in parallel. Logically. Yeah. yeah no, no, you're right. 
But at the time, you know, the State Department felt more of the brunt to this. And so, you know, in the late 90s, we went through three or four years in which we took in no new foreign service officers. And like any institution, you fast forward, you know, 10 years later and, you know, you don't have mid-level professionals because you didn't bring in enough then. So, you know, there were a lot of what I think in hindsight, since all of us are so much smarter when we leave government, um, you know, were some pretty short-sighted policies which underinvested in in diplomacy in that era. Well, and I think it's also natural historically, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think we can beat up whomever you want to beat no. up in that period, but we had a playbook yeah. for, you know, uh, 45 years. And, you know, I mean, right. if you right. sort of sat George Kennan in a room with Jim Baker, you know, at the end, you know, there would be a lot of resonances, yeah. same enemy, right. same objective. And so right. Right. then you get and, – and all of a sudden that pl- playbook gets thrown out world. the window. Mm-hmm. And and you know the you know I mean I you spent some time uh, in your career in the policy planning department mm-hmm. and the State Department. Mm-hmm. When I did my books in the NSC, I would talk to all the national security advisors and say, "What do you lament? You know, what's your regret?" And they would always go, "We never had the strategic planning capability." Or we tried to, yeah. but then we threw yeah. it out after two weeks because there was a fire and we we couldn't yeah. do it. Yeah. Policy planning is unique in that it sort of survived right. through all that, but it sort of drifted also into becoming a kind of a speech writing shop. Yeah, it kind of ebbs and flows depending on how a secretary of state wants to use it. I mean, I worked there through the Baker era in the State Department, and that was – you know, in many respects, a high point for the policy planning staff because Baker, you know, relied on it heavily. It grew to as, you know, big a size as I think you've seen the policy planning staff. And more important than the size were the quality of the people on that staff. You know, a really good mix of career people, not just from the State Department, but from other executive branch agencies and political appointees who were, you know, a terrific group of people too. So I think we were able to play a role which was partly operational, speech writing, supporting Baker. I used to travel, you know, on many, if not most, of his trips. Um, and then also, you know, our best effort, at least, at strategic planning at a time when the world was changing very quickly. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing as I think back on it, and I'll, I'll, I'll make the analogy with another field altogether, but, you know, I, I watch... TV shows sometimes, and I wonder, you know, why is this TV show so much better than the other TV shows, and why is this one on for 10 years and the others flop? And almost invariably, the reason shows succeed is that there are five or six great people in the cast, and it's it's really strong team. And, you know, you can say what you will about Henry Kissinger, mm. or you can say what you will about James Baker mm. uh, or Brent Scowcroft, mm-hmm. for example. Um they all had a really strong eye for talent. Yeah, they really surrounded themselves with the best and the brightest young. And you know, you had, I guess, with Bush and 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 Baker, who was down the hall, Zelik and yeah, Bob Zelik, uh, Dennis Ross, from whom De- I Dennis was was in the in the yeah. policy planning. You were there. There there was a no, we were, there was a, a strong Larry group. Eagleberger was right. the deputy secretary of state. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, people will um, oftentimes get deeply anxious at the State Department about block and line charts and structure. And all of that obviously is important. But with strong people, a strong team of people who can 
disagree with one another sometimes over issues, but operate in pursuit of a broadly shared purpose, um, you know, you can make almost any block and line chart work. Um, if, if you right. But if you go through people. a period like you talked about in the Clinton administration where you, or, where you weren't hiring or, or like the uh, Trump administration where you cut back or you weren't hiring, yeah, and, and you, you, you end up reducing that pool. And if you devalue an office, if you say, I'm not right. I'm, I'm just not going to call. Well, You're not going to get good people to do the job. Well, and that's my concern today about the sort of dismissiveness that you see in this White House's attitude toward professional diplomacy. And, you know, you can measure that in both tangible and intangible ways. In tangible ways, you know, you've seen a slowdown in the intake into the Foreign Service, but also a pretty significant drop in the number of young and not so young people applying to enter the Foreign Service. You know, after a number of years in which every year the number of applicants rose, you have almost a 40% drop in the last couple of years. You know, you have the painfully slow progress that we made in the Foreign Service over the three and a half decades. I was a diplomat to create a diplomatic service that looks more like the society we represent. I entered the Foreign Service in the early 1980s. Nine out of 10 diplomats looked like me. You know, they were white. Only a quarter were women. Three and a half decades later, we had made painfully slow progress, gender balance, still woefully inadequate representation at the senior most levels, but some progress. Those trend lines have been reversed. There's the pernicious practice today, I think, of going after individual career officers, some senior, some mid-level, just because they worked on controversial issues in the last administration. You've got a huge number of senior vacancies, both in embassies overseas as well as in Washington, um, and that creates another problem but reflects that kind of dismissive attitude. Then you have the intangible problems. You know, when the president was asked a year or so ago whether he was concerned about all those senior-level vacancies, he said, not really because I'm the only one who matters. That's diplomacy as an exercise in narcissism. Not the diplomacy that I learned, you know, working for Baker and George H.W. Bush. Right. And it also breaks down any sense of a functioning national security system within mm -hmm. the government, which depends on coordination, but you have to value it. It depends on advice, but you have to right. value it and, and so forth. But the other th interesting thing that happened in the midst of that period, you know, if you were to look back, you know, and say, what was the watershed moment of the past 40 or 50 mm -hmm. years? You might say the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, 1991, fall mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happened in 1991, though, was, and you and I have talked about this yeah. in countless breakfasts, was um, the, the World Wide Web was launched. Right. And we went from a world in which a diplomat was the primary conduit between the leaders of two governments. And in many respects, governments were the principal connection mm -hmm. between certain kinds of countries to a world in which literally every individual today is connected essentially to every other individual. Right. Uh, commerce knows no borders. Right. Uh, dialogue knows no borders. It also changes the nature of conflict. So you can have cyber and other kinds of low-level conflict constantly, as we saw in 2016, changes the way governments can play a role in each other's elections and so forth. But of course, the training process of a diplomat, right. the training process of, of, of government officials across the board in these areas, 
has been very slow to adapt to that. It has been. And, and I think, you know, uh, professional diplomats need to be honest with ourselves about the need to adapt. Uh, you know, I mentioned the term plastic moment before on the international landscape. We saw it in the late 40s after the end of the Second World War. We saw it after 1989 entering into a new era. And we're seeing it today with a different kind of landscape. Some of those changes are geopolitical, the kind we're more accustomed to, the return of great power rivalry. We're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block. But some of them have to do exactly with what you were describing before, David, and that's the revolution in technology um, in the information age in which we live today, Uh, global challenges like climate change, for example. And so for diplomats, you know, who remain as we sit here today. There are lots of American diplomats doing hard work in hard places around the world. So you've got to preserve and strengthen the traditional skills of diplomats because even though the role of governments has in some ways been eroded, you know, with the rise of non-state actors, um, you know, diplomacy is still a business or a profession of human interaction. So, you know, foreign language capability, a sense of history, a sense of how best to navigate other societies still remains enormously important. But what you've got to build on to that is a sense of agility and a whole new set of skill sets as well. Because, you know, individual American diplomats today um, can be incredibly courageous and resourceful and innovative as an institution State Department is rarely accused of being too agile or too full of initiative. So there are things that have to be done to reform the State Department, to make it more nimble, to strip away some of the layers and the bureaucracy in the place, and then to attract people into professional diplomacy, even if it's shorter, for shorter periods of public service, who are you know have a capacity in the world of technology, in, on issues like climate change that are going to matter increasingly. And so, you know, we're going to have to, I think the State Department is going to have to become more agile in terms of how you attract people and how you deal with a generation, two daughters in their 20s. And, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that they're going to do one thing, one profession for 35 years like I did. You know, so we're going to have to be more flexible, I think, in terms of how we attract people and how we retain them. Well, and you know, the vocabulary has changed. The issues have changed. You know, you can have a cyber conversation with a bunch of people who don't understand right. how networks work or firewalls work or whether they work or mm-hmm. how encryption works or what blockchain is or whatever. Yep. But having said that, you can also render 35 years of diplomatic training irrelevant with a single tweet. Mm-hmm. You know, that if the president doesn't recognize and right. appreciate the importance of the diplomatic core. He, he could send out a tweet. Yeah. And, and, and this has happened a lot in the past couple of years where yeah. people wake up in an embassy right. and they go, holy crap. Right. You know, our policy just changed. Yeah. There was yeah. no process. No, where the policy process is bounded somewhere between 140 and 280 characters. And the, the problem is not that, you know, professional diplomats have a monopoly on wisdom. We don't. But the point is that, you know, you want to at least demonstrate some respect for that expertise and at least take into account, take it into account, if not always follow it. Um, And, you know, I I think when you don't do that, it can come at considerable expense in terms of not just how choices are made, but how they're implemented. Because if you don't have a bureaucracy that feels it's in on the takeoff, then the landings get pretty complicated. Well, it it also involves what one might call, although perhaps not anymore, the art of the deal, which is to say 
One might. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but you know, the, with, with regard to that, certain parts of negotiation, yep. and we'll come to that in a second, but certain parts of negotiation best take place behind the scenes, yeah. out of the spotlight. Um, uh, you, you know, if you want to pressure somebody, if you do it publicly, it has one kind of consequence. Right. If you do it privately, it has a different kind of consequence. And you need to understand and evaluate those choices before you undertake them. You do, and the balance and the sequence and everything else. No, you're right. So the, in the third sort of phase of this thing, when we sort of get into post-2001 and mm -hmm. we're kind of desperate to have an organizing principle and we lurch into war on terror, mm -hmm. um, which I think in retrospect was a mistake, and mm -hmm. we lurch into Iraq, in which retrospect was a mistake. Yep. We also get to a point, and you talk about this in the book a lot, where the government made some big wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. And you talk a little bit about regretting them, mm -hmm. although I think mm -hmm. you take unto yourself a degree of uh, the potential to influence these things, yeah. Yeah. Um, which uh, is probably unfair to you. Mm -hmm. Because this was a political process. Yeah. It was driven from outside the system in many respects. It was also an, an emotional process, right? You know, I mean, you know, look at how many people voted to go to war in Iraq. Yep. You know, it was they weren't voting to go to war in Iraq because it was a carefully calculated decision. They were voting to go to war in Iraq because 3,000 ex-people died exactly. on 9-11 and something had to be done, right? And and there was an understandable determination on the part of the president on down to do everything we could to ensure that this wouldn't happen again. Right, right. Now, there were <clears throat> opportunists yeah. who wanted to settle certain old scores, and they abused diplomatic processes mm -hmm. in this regard. They abused Colin Powell at the UN and, and so forth. Now... Could he have stood up and fought that? Well, actually, he did. Mm -hmm. And and you did. And people five notches down the spectrum wrote reports mm -hmm. and said, this is not going to work. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I guess the question becomes, um, you know, can a bureaucracy act as a break? effectively? Or is that just unrealistic? I don't think it's unrealistic. Um, but I think it's essential that you try. I mean, you have an obligation as a, a professional public servant, you know, if if you just fundamentally can't abide a policy direction, and you don't think that you can faithfully carry it out, then you have the option to resign. And I had huge respect for the people There were, you know, more than 20 um, career uh, civil and civil service officers and foreign service officers who resigned from the State Department over Bosnia and Balkans issues in the 1990s. There were three or four over Iraq in 2003. That's an honorable choice to make. I think it's also an honorable choice um, to operate within a disciplined system. But along with that comes an obligation to be honest, even when it's inconvenient about the concerns that you have. And that's why, you know, even though we didn't 
make much of a dent in the direction of policy. I still remember one of the most depressing brainstorming sessions that you know I ever engaged in as a diplomat was, you know, one afternoon in the summer of 2002 when two of my colleagues, Ryan Crocker and David Pierce, who were working with me in the Near East Bureau of the State Department, spent a couple hours in this depressing brainstorming session trying to identify all the things we thought could go wrong after Saddam Hussein was overthrown. And we called this memo the perfect storm. And, you know, reading it in retrospect, you know, we got it about half right and half wrong. We exaggerated some things. We missed others. But I mention it only because it was an honest effort to lay out our concerns and to broadly make the argument that this was going to be a really complicated situation, that in some senses the easy part was going to be the military challenge of overthrowing Saddam. The hard part was going to be the day after. To manage that, it helped to have a lot of company regionally and internationally on the takeoff to share responsibility afterwards. It helped to think ahead about the realities of Iraqi politics and not be duped by the Ahmed Chalabis of the world, you know, the oppositionist leaders who, you know, were kind of spinning a web of stories about how easy this was all going to be afterwards. And so, you know, it was an imperfect but at least honest effort to lay out some of those concerns. Well, you know, and then it gets to other roles that a bureaucracy a diplomat can play and sort of move forward into the Obama era. And when we do, mm. we see one thing that you you talk about in the, in, in the book, which is essentially, in some respects, we're pretty good at the long game, mm-hmm. describing a vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and Obama start, came out of the box on foreign policy, going to Cairo mm-hmm. with a vision, going to Prague, with a vision about nuclear mm-hmm. weapons, uh, you know, giving um, an Oslo speech. Th- these were sort of high mm-hmm. points of vision, but it, there, there was not then the next level follow-up. Now, you talk a little bit about how we've got the long game but not the short game. I, 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 my, my view is slightly tweaked uh-huh. different, uh-huh. nuanced as, you know, the, the nature of foreign policy analysis is always just nuance on nuance, but... And that is, I think our real weakness is the middle game. Mm. It's not just the, the, you know, tactically we can do certain things. Somebody blows up a ship, we can blow them up uh, and so forth. Where you get into the middle game is is place like Syria Mm -hmm. where, you know, you can say, well, should we bomb or should we not bomb? But the question is, how do you stabilize? What kind of risks do you want to take? And, you know, sort of what's... What's your three to five year vision mm-hmm. of our role, our allies' role, and and a strategy? And yeah. and again, I you you talk, you talk very well in the book about the problems associated with with Syria yeah. as a decision pertaining to Syria, mm-hmm. but I also think there's a similar set of issues associated with Syria as part of a kind of incoherent Middle East policy. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right about the sort of middle game um, being a very complicated process of trying to match ends and means. And, I, you know, I think ultimately the fairest indictment of all of us in that era in managing policy towards Syria after the revolution and the civil war began 
is that we didn't match ends to means. You know, we said maximalist ends, Assad must go, there's a red line on chemical weapons. Um, but we we coupled them with, in a sense, minimalist means, or at least means that were applied to grudgingly and incrementally. So you look at what Vladimir Putin did in September of 2015 with a military intervention in Syria that was not huge in scope, but it was telescoped, you know, in a brief period of time, which maximized the political and diplomatic impact. If you add up everything we did in Syria to support the opposition and to squeeze Assad from 2011 through, say, the end of 2014, it's actually pretty significant. But it was done, I think, so grudgingly and incrementally that it never had the impact in terms of strengthening our leverage in diplomacy that it might otherwise have had. Well, so democracy makes it really hard to accept messy outcomes. Right. But most outcomes in foreign policy are messy. They are. So, so yeah. Vladimir Putin can go into Syria right. and say, I want to get X, Y, and Z. I may lose A, B, and C. Um, I may screw up in these ways, but I control my media and I control my people, and I'm not going to worry about that. Yeah, no, Vladimir Putin is kind of unencumbered by democracy or those kind of instincts. Right, so or conscience. Right. Yeah, that too. No, no, I think that's right. And it also, I think, what happens in, in our democratic political system with all of its strengths is that compromise becomes complicated too. And, you know, diplomacy at the end of the day oftentimes is about the best of the available alternatives because perfect is rarely on the menu. And so you're looking for the best available alternative that you can achieve diplomatically backed up by military and economic leverage. But oftentimes that involves some, you know, painful and um, uncomfortable compromises too. Right. And also democracy in our system tends to get oversimplified. And, and you know, with Syria, that was the, always the debate. Well, what do you want to do? Right. You know, have another Iraq? Right. You know, and and you know, and and the answer was well. There's something between doing nothing, yeah, and having another Iraq the, that the, might achieve some of our goals. Hence right? the middle game. Yeah, no, I think you're right, David. I mean, if you look at the Syria red line, you know, episode in which you know the president in August of 2012 had said publicly, "There's a red line with regard to Syrian regime's use of chemical weapons against its own people or anybody else." Over the next year, they kind of tested the limits of that. And then, you know, in August of 2013, a year later, you had, you know, over a thousand, you know, Syrian civilians, many of them women and children who were killed in a terrible poison gas attack. Um, and so that red line was clearly crossed. And the question is, what are you, you going to do about it? Now, I had great sympathy for President Obama's concern about not getting dragged down the slippery slope toward another big U.S. military intervention in the Middle East. I do think, I mean, I thought at the time, I do think today, that that was one instance where you had a really significant international norm being crossed, using chemical weapons against your own people or anybody else. Um, and, and a significant punitive strike would not necessarily have dragged us down that slippery slope. But well, it was the shadow of Iraq 2003 that was hanging over a lot of these choices. You know, as you say it, rather disturbingly, what strikes me is that there is some analogy between Syria and the Russian attacks on our democracy in 2016 and our, our response to them 
uh, and some of the Trump attacks on the rule of law in our response mm. to them, which is there are big norms being crossed there are, and there yeah. are no consequences. And that creates the wrong set of incentives. Well, and it can also breed a kind of lazy fatalism, too, that, you know, Trump's assault on our own, you know, democratic norms or the Russian assault on our democratic system in 2016, that somehow this is becoming the new normal, as Bob Mueller said yesterday. And that's a that's a really dangerous phenomenon. And, you know, that's the test of leadership. We only have a couple of minutes and I could go yeah. on and on and on. But but I don't want to end without touching upon in some respects, kind of a perfect kind of coda for the discussion, which has to do with Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, and you were involved in leading the discussions with the Iranians behind mm -hmm. the scenes for the JCPOA, or as mm -hmm. our friend Rosa Brooks calls it on the Deep State Radio regularly, JICPOA. <laughs> um, that's her DOD training. Good you know. Um, yeah. But... Um, you don't call it Chickapoa, do you? Mm -mm. No, 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 I wouldn't do that. That's the State Department. Yeah, that, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but the, I mean, you were behind this. Mm -hmm. It was a remarkable sort of feat of negotiation, mm -hmm. uh, achieved a lot, and it was flawed. It was an imperfect mm -hmm. deal, but it may have been the best deal yeah, I, that, that, that we could get. And, you know, in some respects, when you look at diplomacy, essentially what we're saying is, we have to accept that it is, you know, diplomats can be dressed in a certain way, or right. we can have an, you know, an idea of them. Yeah. But but it, but but we have to accept that the outcomes are in the real world, and they're mixed. Right. And that it's actually a process. Mm -hmm. You get the best that you can get today, and then you you right. you plan on on make it better tomorrow. That's a really important point, especially as you look at the Iran nuclear negotiations, because both the interim agreement we reached after the secret talks that I led through all of 2013, and then the comprehensive agreement summer of 2015, were meant to be the beginning, not the end, of diplomacy. You know, we were still left with the challenge of how over the years to tighten that nuclear agreement to try to extend the timelines on some of the constraints on Iranian enrichment and on their civilian nuclear program, all aimed very squarely at ensuring that they wouldn't develop a nuclear weapon, but also to deal with those other elements of the regime's behavior that threatened our interests and the interests of our friends, from ballistic missile development to efforts to unsettle their neighbors and, you know, support conflicts or terrorism elsewhere in the Middle East. And so the, the, the nuclear agreement was meant to be the foundation on which you tried to mobilize lots of regional and international players uh, on all those other fronts as well. It wasn't meant to be the end of diplomacy and even on the arms control dimension of it, just like dealing with the Soviets during the Cold War, you know, you had agreements and they were meant to be built upon in the years ahead. And that was very much the the framework through which President Obama and others in that administration saw the saw the challenge. So you're right. It was imperfect in some respects, but I remain convinced it was the best of the available alternatives. And I think the problem over the last now more than a year since President Trump abandoned that agreement is that 
Whereas coercive diplomacy worked in that instance in the last administration in the sense that we matched considerable military and economic and political leverage against a set of realistic diplomatic aims, now you have coercive diplomacy in the Trump era that's all about the coercion part and not at all about the diplomacy part. So you have kind of tactics, maximum pressure on this Iranian regime, untethered to strategy, tactics in search of a strategy in some ways. And that's that's what leads to collisions. And that's where, you know, hardliners on both sides in Tehran and Washington can become mutual enablers going up a very shaky escalatory ladder. And then, you know, you have a lot of collateral damage, too. You know, the fissures between us and our closest European allies over, you know, the Iranian nuclear agreement and our decision to abandon it are getting wider. In a sense, doing Vladimir Putin's work for him and the utility of sanctions which we haven't always used well in the past, but sometimes have been incredibly effective, is also being eroded because even our closest allies, like the foreign minister of Germany, stood up a year ago and said, you know, all of us need to reduce our vulnerability to the U.S. financial system. So we'll wake up, not tomorrow, not a year from now, but four or five years from now, and find that that once very effective tool is now far less useful. Well, and then there's also the issue of precedent. Mm -hmm. And you pull the deal away... You know, and there's the precedent that you're not reliable. Right. And then, you know, we've got other things interplaying with it. And if we go and strike a deal with North Korea that essentially says you may have 50 nuclear warheads Hmm. or X number of missiles, how do you get the Iranians back into where you were? No. I mean, A, when it's part of a pattern of withdrawing from agreements, the Paris Climate Treaty, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the big trade agreement in Asia, as well as the Iranian nuclear agreement. But then when, you know, credibility is an overused term, as we both know in Washington, it's sometimes used to push presidents in the direction of making choices on the use of force that, you know, are, are, are probably not sensible ones. But in this case, it does matter. You know, when people lose faith, in the word of an administration, in their commitment to particular agreements, it gets harder to strike them in the future. And you're right about North Korea. I mean, if you set aside the irony of what I'm about to say, it would actually be a sensible approach to nuclear diplomacy with North Korea right now to take a page out of our book in dealing with the Iranians and look for an interim agreement Given the reality that Kim Jong-un is not going to give up his nuclear arsenal in the foreseeable future, the question is, how do you reduce the dangers in the meantime? So if you could reach an interim agreement on the model of what we did with the Iranians, which not only freezes but rolls back their program, imposes quite intrusive verification and monitoring procedures so we can catch them if they cheat, all in return for relatively modest sanctions relief. We preserve the bulk of that in dealing with the Iranians for the later comprehensive talks. That would be a you know, a pretty sensible step in my view, but that's not the same thing as summitry and pageantry and love letters. Um, that's the hard day in, day out, imperfect work of diplomacy. And you know, I, I fear that we're gonna continue to be driven by illusions in that diplomacy. Um, the illusion that there's some grand bargain out there that, you know, we're going to reach through the president's particular powers of personal persuasion. And I just don't think that's very likely. Right. And 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 the illusion is a photo op as opposed to a process, which right. is time consuming. And, and, it, and it's gotten us to a place where 
We're out of JCPOA. We're out of TPP. We're out of the European right. Climate Accords. NATO wonders whether we're in it. Right. Um, uh, no country knows whether we're going to stick to our deal, administration to administration. Right. Uh, no diplomat's phone call gets returned very quickly because right. you don't need to deal with them. You deal with only one guy in the White House. Uh, and it's a kind of a nadir. And and one of the reasons, you know, we've run out of time, but one of the yeah. reasons that I think your book is so vital is the only way to recover from that, Nadir, is to go back and study this period mm -hmm. and to say, what did we learn and how do we do it right? Because we're going to have to start again. In 18 months, we're going to have to rebuild credibility, diplomacy, international system, alliances, mechanisms like the State Department. It's going to be, you know, Dean Acheson wrote President at the Creation, 2020, I hope, is going to be, or 2021 is going to have to be present at the recreation. And that's yeah. a big job of work. It's a huge piece of work. And it has to be based on a recognition that the world's changing around us. So we can't just turn the clock back to the 90s or some of the earlier periods we were talking about. We still, however, have a better hand to play, I, I believe today, than our major rivals in the world. Not just because of our economic leverage and our military leverage, significant as that is, but also because of our capacity to draw on alliances and mobilize coalitions of countries to deal with both geopolitical problems, but also with those big overarching global challenges of climate and the revolution in technology. Um, the key to tapping into that asset which is what sets us apart today from lonelier powers like China and Russia, is diplomacy. And what I worry about today is we're corroding that tool and squandering that asset at precisely the moment when they both matter more than ever to the United States. Totally right. Chilling. And a reason to read The Back Channel by Bill Burns. Um, I strongly recommend it. We have an audience of tens of thousands of people who just care about foreign policy and national security. So if they haven't gotten this book yet, they should. We have a book club that buys a bunch of books. I hope they will take a good, strong look at this. Uh, and I hope you'll come back because there's a lot okay. to talk about. And, and you don't even have to come back to our studios where we're doing this. We can just do it over the phone. Good. But I'd love to continue the conversation. Always, always a pleasure, David. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Bill. Deep okay. State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.